I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. I don't know what we're going to talk about today. I'm, I'm feeling kind of like we should record a podcast, but... I've had a long day of talking to other people, and I'm a bit low energy. So, get me. To, let's talk about something interesting that's going to get me excited. What, what, what do you got? Uh, some long pause. What are we going to talk about? Well, we could talk about make. I love make. That's I was very, that's very, very. Un um un uh, fashionable to like make, but it's mm-hmm. it's arcane, it's awkward, it's spiky to use, mm-hmm. um, but it Very. it's good at a particular job, and that is its f- primary job is to be already be installed on any computer you might want to use. <laughs> that is the the primary feature that Make has is that you already have it whether you want it or not. Very very likely you have it. I don't actually know nowadays if an ubuntu say machine comes with it but i would be i would not be surprised to find that it is already on a system even if i went for a minimal install it just it's so base Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but yeah the thing i like about make is it's sort of self-bootstrapping once you've got make maybe curl oh no i see now we've got two things but uh, all right okay but with with a very minimal set of things make can build its everything else that you need from it. So maybe you don't like Make. You know, maybe like me, you like uh, to use CMake and Ninja and other magical, clever things to build your software. But Make can make those things happen for you. Make can download the binaries and put them in a bin directory and and, and make sure that they appear. And that mm-hmm. is my preferred way of distributing uh, source code for the projects that I'm involved in. And it's like I it's one of the things I covered the most is the, the the feedback from new members of my team or folks who are just interested in the code that I've got. That they say, hey, I just git cloned your repo and I typed make and the whole thing built just fine out of the box. It, I didn't have to think about anything. I didn't have to install anything. And I'm like, yes, that's how it should be. That's how mm-hmm. software should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I I love make because it's a it can be used as a general purpose tree of tasks thing doer mm-hmm. which also can be run in parallel if you like. And uh with that and and as you say it's just everywhere, right? Like you you almost certainly have it whether you know it or not. And so you can get this sort of magical developer experience where you clone a repo, you run make uh, maybe it prints out a little help menu of targets for you, right. which you, you run make, and then you uh, just have everything magically installed, and it all just works. And it's like, oh, how do I run my test? Well, you write make test. Well, how do I start up the system? Well, you run make start or make run or something like that. And you to know? be absolutely clear here, make here is could be the thing that's actually doing all of the crazy dependency tracking and, right. and all that, but it also could just be a kind of front end to... Mm-hmm. A, another tool that says like, hey, I'm just going to make sure the environment is right to run the rest of the system so you don't have to remember which weird packages you need to install and put where. 
And yeah. again, so I guess a corollary to this is that where it is possible, I personally love to have sort of hermetically sealed um, dependencies. Like, mm-hmm. don't assume, except for maybe curl, <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> right. or wget or whatever. Don't assume that somebody will install a whole bunch of random packages globally in order to support your project locally. That's kind of, yeah. I mean, we're also, for, I sh- should say, we're all, we're very lucky that the situation that we're in, certainly at work in our day job, is that everyone has a monoculture of operating systems. It's like, it's a big deal when we move the company forward to a new version of the operating system. And so we kind of know everyone's on this particular version of Linux. Um, but even in my personal life, my some of the projects I've got assume some kind of Linux, and then they mostly work on that out of the, out of the gate. You know, maybe I'll say, okay, you go and get Node. You get Node, mm-hmm. and then I'll check that it's the right version of Node, and then I'll run it. But it's still... I mean, it, behind the scenes, NPM is going to be doing all the package management or whatever, all locally and hermetically. It's not global. Um, but Make is the thing that's making sure that you have got the right version of Node and NPM and then invoking them in the right way. And then as a user, mm-hmm. you don't need to know that. Make run. Right. There you go. It's running. Make start, as you say. Right. And I think that's... it's For somebody who doesn't quite know what's going on with the software and how to build it, it's just nice to have a convenient API. I don't know what, what it's not an application program. It's like an application developer interface, right? It's an ADI. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a you know whenever you build automation like that, it serves two purposes. One is it just makes people's lives easier. Full stop. It also serves as a completely authoritative and correct documentation of how the process works. Right. Right. Because that's the only way to do it is to run, you know, make tests. Like that's the only way that we have to run our tests, right? So if you want to know how to run the tests, you can read what that does and you will know for certain. And you can version it with your code and change it over time. And you can have pull requests where you discuss it and be like, oh, you know, maybe we should optimize it in this way. Or maybe we should offer this kind of flexibility for it. And it doesn't become this like you know, thing that you just have to know if you work on the project or, you know, living in a rotten piece of documentation somewhere that no one's updated in three years or something like that, you know, it's like, oh yeah, how do you run the the test? Well, you, you pull up Ben's bash history and you find all the commands that he ran to do this, right? With folks that have got their like Google doc of shared like crib Mm -hmm. sheets of like, this is how we do that thing. And they paste from it into their terminal. And it's, yeah, it's not something I enjoy. And it's not something I would like to to have in, in my project. And, I guess one of the solutions to the hermetic makefile thing that people go for is is something like Docker, where the steps mm-hmm. to get the environment set up are part of the Docker container. And I guess that's arguably far more hermetic than the stuff that I'm talking about here, because it's you know very much contained and localized. There's no external state can escape into it without like a lot of work. So maybe that's a slightly better thing. But in my experience, Docker ends up being a millstone in that environment. I would yeah. much rather kind of rely on, well, everything's in a dot bin directory inside my, you know, git ignores dot bin directory. And that's what the make file, the first thing the make file does is put that dot bin directory at the front of the path. And now it's like, hey, anything we might need should be in, in, in here. That kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found myself, especially in recent years, leaning much more toward projects that offer a sort of single binary download for their tools. You know, a lot of the HashiCorp tools right, have this, of course. and there are other projects as well where you know you can just go fetch this thing unpack it for whatever architecture it is that you're using and there you go you've got your single binary that you can run and to, to that factors nicely into this sort of make file thing where you're like okay if dot bin slash terraform doesn't exist then 
This is how to get dot bin slash terraform, curl the HashiCorp endpoint, and then pipe it through gunzip, and then chmod it, and put it in dot bin, and then we're done. And you're like, there yeah. you go. All right, now anything yep. that needs Terraform will run that version of Terraform, and it came down. And then maybe you put the, the version number in there as well so that you can yeah, bump yeah. the version and like you just automatically downloads the next version, and everyone's on the same version of Terraform, all that kind of good stuff. Right, right, right. And yeah, and this all gets back to Make, because what is Make good at? But it's like, Make this file exist, <laughs> right? Well, how do I make that file exist? Well, here's the target that describes how you bring that file into existence at this location that you want it to be. And that can be a dependency of another thing that needs that file. And that's just essentially right. what you're doing when you're, when you're, you know, it's like compilation is in, in this context is just turning curl into bits on your disk <laughs> right. instead of like compiling a file into bits on your disk. But it's all sort of the same thing in a way. Yes. Um, it's 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 funny and i actually so this is uh something that i've been struggling with for the last week or so actually because i had an engineer on my team conduct a little experiment with his m2 mac where he because right now all their development like you say is on linux we use mac as sort of a dumb terminal right <laughs> for a lot of the things that we do which is a little bit of a shame they are you know pretty powerful machines but that's you know, just how they're set up um and you know all of our ci runs on linux all of the servers that we do run on linux everything else um but just out of curiosity and maybe i shouldn't have asked this question uh -oh. i had him go and run our tests on his mac uh and they ran in half the time and i'm Whoa. like well we're moving to Macs. <laughs> on a on a, a desk uh, sorry a, a laptop m2 yes. the test yes. run Faster than on like our big beefy servers that we connect to. Yes. Holy smoke. Like a lot faster. And so, um, and you know, this project's in Java. Right. That, and so yeah. moving it to a Mac is not a totally insane idea. Right. But one of the things that I will definitely have to uh, reconcile if we're going to do that is the sort of, you know, GNU BSD mismatch that uh, you get. yeah when you have shell scripts or other things that are written for Linux and now you're trying to run them on a Mac and, you know, grep is not quite the same or some other thing is yeah. not quite the same. And now I have to do this and I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, okay, there's no way I'm giving up on this level of automation that we've talked about, right? Like if yeah. the choice is move to Macs and then do everything manually or stay on Linux, we're going to stay on Linux. Yeah. Right? There's no question. Yeah. Right. Um, but, one of the things can definitely happen when you do this kind of stuff is that you you start to accumulate these like automate these things that you build right make targets that you build scripts that you write and you use them a few times and maybe they're useful and then you 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 know maybe never use them again and they just sort of hang around and i think unlike source code where you're maybe more frequently looking at it and you're sort of thinking about like, okay, is this, can this be used? Well, I'm going to, I've got my main function or something. And it's like, well, if it's not a dependent of that in some way, well, then why do we even have right. this code, right? Whereas with, you know, some of those little utility things, you maybe don't, don't notice that or don't think to ask that question. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping to think about this as like, okay, well, if we're going to move over to, you know, OS 10 as mm -hmm. our main development environment, that's going to force me to reevaluate the worth of every single one of these little utilities and things that I've because built. Because now there's a 
a double cost to it. There may already be a cost because if you went back to it right now, it may have rotted in some small way, exactly, but it's yeah. only with it. It should be within spitting distance of working. Whereas there's sort of yeah. an unbounded amount of difference between the version, as you say, of grep or some command line flag mm-hmm. that you're like, there is no equivalent on, on BSD. Oh, what, Oh, what are we going to do here? Yeah. And maybe the answer is you just delete it because you haven't used it in six months. And if you need it again, well, you, the code's not going anywhere. Yeah. You can go find it. You can We've dust it off. Spoken you can of this before, it, but... the immutability yeah. of like the history of code, its source code, it's there to go and find again. Exactly. So exactly. Maybe is that is that an argument for those funny little tasks leaning even more into the like make is purely a thing doer and say the things that it does are very 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 limited. They they're restricted mm. to running things like Python scripts for which we know are maybe mm. more portable, maybe. I'm, I'm saying that out loud now, but now I'm not so sure because I, I remember having this debate with Java um, and uh, another colleague of ours a way back wanted to do a similar thing with Java when, when we were working on a system um, around the time actually when we were discussing whether it was C++ or Java, which I think was oh, you know, a long yeah. while ago. But um, That was, yeah. Yeah, right. anyway, that time. And the sort uh-huh. of the, the, he was making the same point, you know, like I would love to be able to run this on my... Um, on, on a Mac or just a not my uh, my desktop machine and Java gives me that illusion and I'm like that's fine but the day you come to me with a bug that's like oh this weird native library that we're using doesn't work the same way on Mac as it does on Linux is the day oh, I say right. stop yeah. doing that because yeah. you know with, with the particular project we were talking about that might have been a real possibility some esoteric networking thing or some um, you know, uh, pub sub mechanism that was like had a native backend, that kind of feel. Whereas I think the stuff yeah. that you're talking about is more like AWS interaction, which seems like it might be the same across the the, the two and, and yeah, HTTP libraries yeah. and things. Right. So you know, yes. that's a, there's a little bit of. I mean, I suppose I took the other side of what you're saying, which is like you know, like well, no, I guess it's not actually. You said if there was a a, a choice between okay, we can't do this because sorry, we have to do this manually, or we leak we have automation in Linux, you say, well, we just have the Linux. We can't do it on the Mac. But if you yeah, can get right. it to work um, on, the, on the Mac, then you would. Now, that makes, yeah. that makes sense. But yeah, it's that thing of like not knowing where the sort of cross-platform troubles lie until you run everything. I mean, I know this is going to sound weird, but what if you had tests? Well, yeah. So, I mean... <laughs> you know we started out this episode this episode with a with a darth of ideas yeah and now i'm looking at the clock going be like if i start talking about this we're gonna run out of time but um, <laughs> i think we're good but uh yeah so i mean i i have definitely done things in the past where i had a lot of shell scripts that i needed to test and i wound up testing them in what i thought was a fairly novel way um, if I remember, well, the way that you were testing it might actually not solve the problem that we are seeing here. No, it wouldn't. It, it right. Would Do be, you want to talk a little bit about Let's segue for... briefly into the, your, 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 your way of testing shell scripts. Yeah. And then yeah. we can talk so, about why it's a great idea, but it doesn't work in it this It doesn't instance. solve this problem. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. So the, the way that I did this was, and I know that there are testing libraries for Bash. Right. That exists. Like actual regular I, testing things yes. that work like the way. If you want to write a yes, like a regular unit style test for Bash, you can absolutely do that. Um, I've tried those things. You know, I find them kind of unrewarding. Like I, I don't really see the productivity <laughs> gains that I get with other approaches to testing when I test Bash that way. Um, and maybe it's just that I don't know how to use them effectively. Right. But that, well, maybe, that has been my experience. Maybe 
you shouldn't be writing that complicated stuff in Bash in the first place, which is a kind of the argument about the Python thing that we just talked about. But let's assume right. that you've got enough little bits and pieces that are like nothing more than grep and tail and a few other bits and pieces. Like, mm-hmm. And it's like, well, why would I? This is perfect. Go yeah, ahead. Sorry, yeah. I keep interrupting you. No, no, it's, it's good. Well, and so like the, the approach that I took here was to kind of treat Bash as a uh, kind of difficult to work with text based uh, interaction protocol. Right. Right. So I wrote a bunch of Python okay. that generated bash and I unit tested that Python. And I basically treated the bash like, okay, this is just the protocol that you use to interact with the operating system. Right. Um, and so your tests were done at the level of the interaction with the operating system through the strings that would have been passed to the interpreter. Exactly. Exactly. And so what this wound up being is you'd have a Python program that you could run and it would basically just be like, you know, uh, run this Python program and then pipe it into Bash because it just outputs Bash. Right. Right. And then you can unit test that Python and you could do fun things like you could just output the uh, write the output to shell check. And then it'd be like a kind of an almost an integration test of the Python to say, like, OK, I might, did I miss any unit tests here? Right. right. Is the is the bash that I'm generating no good? And you could compose them together so you could have like, you know, a Python function that generated a bash function. And then you could call a bunch of those functions to generate a whole script, and then call, you know, pipe together different bash functions to do different right. things. And it was kind of clever and interesting. And it, it, it gave me what I wanted in terms of the confidence that I, I needed. To know that you were generating um, the right interactions with the operating system, which is yes. perfect for what you were doing then. But this, right. what we're really talking about here is trying to develop confidence that the interactions with the operating system are in fact the correct interactions and have the same effect in both operating systems. And that's right. almost an integration we, test, definitionally. Yes. Right? I mean, I, I can't... And there might even be differences in the behavior that would otherwise be acceptable and it would be very difficult to know what those were a priori right. and say... And it wouldn't even necessarily make sense to do that. It's like, you know, if you're in a world where it's like, yeah, we just deploy on Linux and develop on Linux, why would I do anything that supported BSD? That wouldn't make sense. So you wouldn't design it that way. Yeah. Right? So, you know, like... I probably the real answer to this, um, and I thought about this too, is don't try to like, you know, lock yourself in a room with uh, a, a, a some you know box of pizza and a laptop and just hack this out. And all right, this is going to be the weekend when you guys come in on Monday morning. We're going to be on Macs, and right now we're on Linux. <laughs> the way the way to do this, especially because the project is in Java is to try to move more of those operational tasks into the Java world. And then when you have shrunk it down to a level where you're like, okay, it is just make and a couple of other little wrappery things. And I can very quickly verify, you know, I can, I can clone the, I can do exactly what we talked about a few minutes ago, which is I can clone the project. I can type make and, It'll run, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, well, then okay, try again. You right, missed right. a spot. But this right? is like you're moving the functionality out of the out of the bash and into the rest of right. your framework. You're treating it as a first class citizen inside inside the rest of the the, yes. the code base, where you know you have your libraries for interacting with files and logs and things that you already have. And mm-hmm. instead of using grep, you're like, well, okay, I guess I will just use a regular expression. I mean, seems to make make sense to me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Yeah, if you already have that infrastructure around and you don't need it to work outside of that infrastructure, it makes a mm-hmm. lot of sense, right? Um, 
if it's involved in the build of that stuff, obviously you've got a bit of a chicken and egg situation if these little tools are involved in it. But I think that's that's yeah. not likely to be a problem. Um, you know, and you mentioned again like the HashiCorp style of of mm-hmm. uh, like having these little executable binaries that are like them, themselves for external dependencies. We've done that in a couple of places on our projects. We've got a couple of like helper binaries that would have potentially started out as python programs themselves which then entail mm. all of the fun and games of like well how do i make this an executable and there are ways and means of turning a python function or a python command line tool and its dependence and all of the and the, the interpreter and everything into what looks like a binary except it's just a giant tarball that unpacks itself into temp and then run it's all all the bad things you might imagine that happen it's clever and it works but it's not great we rewrote that in in rust as mm-hmm. an example of, uh, you know, relatively, we wanted to learn some Rust anyway, and we did it as, as as a Rust project. And Rust is relatively straightforward to then do a static compile, and mm-hmm. we ended up with just a little binary. And then we're like, okay, well, we version that, we chuck that somewhere, and that's one of the things we curl down in our make file. And okay, it's divorced and it's separate from our our project, but if it's part of the build itself, or it's useful to work, even when you've kind of broken your project and you can't do anything, but you want to be able to like go help i'm debugging and diagnosing something and the last thing i want to do is have to rebuild everything mm-hmm. then it's a convenient little uh way of achieving that so i've just gone round in a big old circle there <laughs> you, you mentioned like <laughs> taking a long time to talk but um yeah no i you know it's it it's funny that like i don't really hear people talking about this as much as i would expect the sort of like deployment impacts and the automation impacts of the decisions that you make when you're building these tools, especially tools that you intend for someone else to be used. Like I always cringe a little bit when it's like, oh, here's this great tool that does this thing. Oh, how do I run it? Well, you you get this Docker image and you run the Docker image, right? This, again, like, I will could do, you I, really you, not have done better than that? You know, really? I don't. You know my feelings on Docker. I've made them uh, clear here as well. That is one of the few uses of Docker that is maybe okay for like certainly for ci it's like we are in a very stable world now where i just know that only the things that i said i needed are there and that Mm -hmm. makes sense but i don't see it as a great developer experience i want it to work as a developer i don't want to have to work in a pretend copy of my own machine inside my own machine you know there's sort of a russian doll thing going on here and then there's the the issue that like essentially by running docker you have root on the system that you're running on whether you want it or not and every file's owned by root and you want to like punch files in and out and then you're right it's just all there for developing Mm -hmm. and i know that there are ways and means of making it slightly better but it just feels like I don't know, you've seen the meme, you know, it works on my computer. Well, we'll ship your computer then. And thus Docker was born. And it feels a bit like that. It's like, well, the build works on my machine. All right, well, let's tarball up your machine. And now Barry's machine.tar.gz is how everyone builds software. It's like, how is this built? Uh, I don't know. Now, obviously, Docker definitely has much more of a flavor of we know how it was built. Mm -hmm. Although there's a whole uh, other uh, conversation about like how easy it is to make a Docker image that isn't reproducible. Because the very first thing you do is like sudo apt get install these things. You're like, oh, which version of those things did it install? I don't know the ones that were around when yes. I ran the image at that time. Yes. Oh dear. I know that is that, yeah. That reproducibility is is, is difficult. Um, <sighs> yeah. yeah, but uh, I've lost. I've completely lost the, the thread of where we were going with that now because I I got I ranting about Docker as is my way. That's. I, I, but I said, yeah, you were saying about like um um other people. If you pull down someone else's repository and they either have a Docker file, or for me, the worst thing is it says 
first of all, sudo apt get and it lists this gigantic list of dependencies. I'm like, I don't want to install yeah, these on no. my computer. I already have an incompatible version of this thing, and I don't exactly. want to install your version of it over the top of mine. Yes. I mean, every, every honestly, it's sort of like um, whenever I see that, it's like going into a, a store and they've got like, I don't know, pants that someone else has tried on, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's like, like, you know, I realize that they're, they're not like cleaning them and they, they just fold them and they put them back on the shelf. And it's like, this is how clothing stores work. But it's just like, I don't want to pollute my environment with whatever random packages and I you won't need know for your why. You know, later on when I run out of disk yes. space or whatever, I'm like, why have I got lib bob three dot this? Right. What the heck is that? And you uninstall it, and you're like, well, and I hope something, you know, nothing goes wrong. And then later on, you run some random tool, and it's like uh, unable to find lib bob three dot so, and you're like, oh, I guess it was for this. Oh yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah. I can't blame it because software. I mean, certainly in the native world software deployment and software configuration for for c and c++ is not good mm-hmm. right if you depend on something then really yeah you've got two choices either you ship it yourself or maybe you say you skit submodule it in maybe and then you say oh yeah, yeah now you must mm. you know configure an autoconf and all that horrible ridiculousness to build some random library or you tell somebody oh yeah sudo apt install this thing oh and if you can't get hold of it Here's some random dpackage um, uh, uh, repository you can add to your app list. Oh, and then, yeah. uh-huh. I don't know, some random person on the internet's putting binaries on your computer. You know, I don't know. Sure, fine, whatever. Whatever right. went wrong with pseudo apt installing someone else's code. Um, but yeah, it's not easy to solve. I know there, there are package managers that make this a bit easier. Um, so some of my projects have used uh, Conan, and um, there's VC package as well. But the thing about both those things are um, certainly Conan is is written in Python and has its whole ecosystem. And the cool thing about Conan is I can install it with Make. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm off to the races. Now I'm like, hey, no one need know that I'm using Conan because you download my source code, you type Make, and behind the scenes, Conan goes and solves dependencies, downloads the rest of it, and we're back to where we started in this whole conversation, which is like, it shouldn't matter what it is, but Make starts it off mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and like you know I, there's there's definitely like the sort of like user space versus you know root access type considerations there there's the you know uh at some point something's going to have to depend on some library and i hope that uh you know the the architecture of the system is enough to give you that information you don't need to you know have like like there's a decision to be made and this is like a software design decision where it's like we could do this cool thing but then every developer that every works that ever works on this project is going to have to have this thing installed as root because there's no other way to do it and it's like you know i'm not i wish i could say that you should just never do that like that's just unfortunately not true but you should you should not weigh those decisions lightly you should think about what the long-term impacts of all of those things are going to be um because it's just a tax that you're gonna have to pay forever right you can't you're never gonna unwind that right unless you like move from linux to mac and you're like ah maybe we don't need this <laughs> yeah right and then you're like deleting large events <laughs> who uses yes. make you know test three or whatever make make right. uh, uh 
log tail and you're like well it's right, got some complicated right, right. tail minus f thing in it but you know you know what's also good at doing that i can write 10 lines of java that'll do the same thing and it'll yeah, be cross platform yeah, yeah. yeah you know write once run anywhere as java is <laughs> it tries to be one thing actually one thing i've never done uh that i that might i might wind up doing as a result of this is uh these days i'm pretty sure that it is possible to write a Java file with a shebang at the top and then just run it. Yeah. Um, and I had never really had the opportunity to do that. Oh, interesting. Because the, most of the time, if I'm doing something like that, I'm reaching for bash uh, or something like that. But it it would be interesting if some of these bash scripts that I have actually turn into Java. They can use some of the other tools that we have yeah. in the project. They could be unit tested in the same way that everyone else, everything else can. But you sort of use them as you would use a bash script, right? They're, right. they're command well, line friendly. I mean, you can pipe the output to Frankly, even if you can't things. do it with a shebang directly as, as as Java, you could very easily make that generic Java shim app that just runs itself as argv0, sure. but with inside, you know, j- that dot jar in some internal directory. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or in, more importantly, does make uh, Java hyphen compile and then does that thing so that you're always making sure you're running the most up to date version of that and not being confused. Um, that's an that's an interesting thought. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. It's like a it's like an option to Java C where you can say, uh, "I'm going to give you a .dot Java file. I want you to compile it and run it in a single operation." Right. Right. And so you put that in your shebang, and now you can just kind of you know write java like you would any other interpreted language right um but so, you know one, one i've never actually of, done it so right i'll be i have interested to see how you get on because uh certainly one thing that i have noticed with uh the compiler explorer startup time is that one of the things we have done or sometimes do is run every compiler that we have um at startup mm-hmm. with just dash dash version just to say what version will help and we do some primitive parsing we do actually do this offline now we but because of this reason um mm-hmm. some of the compilers that we support are written in java like mm-hmm. for example the java compiler and the right. kotlin compiler and the whatever what's the JetBrain? no that is JetBrains. brain you know, scala compilers and all these kind of uh, things yeah. uh-huh. and um one of the f- one of the more recent i don't actually know if it caused an outage now i say this out loud but certainly the cause for my phone going catching fire with alerts of t- about telling me about failed instances was we hit some kind of threshold where there were you know we we in order to start up a, we run like four or five of these at once right because mm-hmm. you know you it's it's node it's really easy to do it's async but um we didn't have enough ram to run eight or nine copies of the jvm <laughs> Each of which thought that they were the only JVM on the system. And so the thing kept ooming and was being killed. And then the whole node would be killed. And I'd get an alert. And another one start up and would die again. And you're like, oh, oh, no. Yeah. So there is a, a, this is obviously, this is just my opportunity to kick, kick Java a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> which I give people grief about for doing. And now I'm just yes. doing it now. I don't, I, you Why know, I don't... do you need 100 megs of memory to tell me what version you are? Come yeah. on, guys. Yeah, and I mean, of course, I'm very much aware why, because it's a much more sophisticated system than than all that. But uh, it does still um, grate a little bit when you're like running four Mm -hmm. copies of it. You're like, what, 150 terabytes of RAM? All right, maybe not that. (laughs) That's a bit except even for like our beefy work machines, 150 terabytes of RAM would might be pushing it. That's a lot of RAM. I want a computer with 150 terabytes of RAM. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, you know. 
That sounds really How cool. How much? What's the maximum? What, what's the largest amount of RAM you've ever had in a computer? A million. Talking. A million. <laughs> That's the largest number, isn't it? <laughs> I thought it was the largest number. I don't even know how much RAM my, my... I'm just going to run that now. It's like one of those things where I've stopped thinking about it for the most part. Uh-huh. I know that like some of our production machines have 512 gig, which is like mind-bogglingly large. Uh, that's half a terabyte, right? You know, that already is like... I've, I don't know if I have that much... Oh, I do have a drive downstairs in the basement that has like my videos and stuff on it that, that is bigger than that. But like most RAM... Di- uh, sorry, hard disks I have are not that big. Yeah. Uh, at Prev Prevco, we had a database instance that had 192 gigs in it, and I think that's probably the most that I can remember. I'm now just running this on this. Point. Oh, I don't know how to use a Mac. I've got a Mac now. I know we talked about this the other day, mm-hmm. and the, the fact that I have finally accepted my fate that the company mm-hmm. wants me to have a Mac mm-hmm. and and all those things. I don't know how to find out how much memory it's got. I've just typed free. This is exactly what we're talking about, right? Yeah, like, right. <laughs> DF worked for me to say how much hard drive yes. space I've got, and then I did free dash eight. Tools are like the bizarro world of GNU, right? Yeah, it's what like, is everything is kind of the same, but not really the same. I've just typed memory. It's like Solaris. Did you ever you ever work on Solaris I, at all? Uh, yes, briefly. And Irix was the other one I worked on, which oh, was the uh, SGI one, I think. Yeah. Uh, these were all. Uh, back in the day, I think we've talked. Maybe have we talked about my multi-user dungeon thing? I think we might have done at some point. But I was maybe. running uh, certainly uh, in the notes that when we were looking before this uh, to for an idea about what the heck we were going to talk about. There's some notes that we should talk about it some more. But um, for a long while, uh, my multi-user dungeon ran on a borrowed, and the vis- listener will have to imagine me doing air quotes about the borrowing and the <laughs> legality therein of a Unix account on a machine that was an Eric's machine. So I had to learn how to administrate yeah. enough of Eric's to be able to run my, my mud on it. Um, but yeah, these, these things, again, they, they, it's, it's funny, isn't it? There's kind of like, um, uh, the, the kind of like uncanny Valley of like, if I'm on a windows machine, there's no question in my mind, I'm not going to try and press the keyboard shortcuts right. that, that do the things I'm expecting. Um, right. But a Mac looks just enough or feels just enough like a Linux machine that I'm, pressing buttons and then i look like my poor old dad trying to use a computer i'm like pressing buttons windows are popping up and disappearing i'm like oh where did it go where's it gone yes uh where and then like yesterday i was on a call and i moved the window off the side of my monitor to to the other monitor and and then i couldn't find it again and i'm literally on a call with someone trying to debug (laughs) something i'm like you're gonna have to excuse me i'm gonna quit and restart the program i'm like oh no this is the beginning of the end anyway that's very much like make (laughs) <laughs> in summary oh dear i feel like we can't really finish <laughs> on any other point now uh, unless you had anything else scott what have we is no. there anything else you got for me or have i just destroyed you what what have we what have we learned today what have we learned today uh, um, yeah. make is a great application um developer interface like if it, you yes. adi of like you should be able to clone a project and type make build or make or whatever it is you do. Mm-hmm. And then you've kind of got something which any developer in your organization or your friendship group or your listenership mm-hmm. who can go, mm-hmm. hey, I know how to build your software. You're like, great. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We've learned that Macs and Linux machines are different. <laughs> same, same, but different. <laughs> yes. Deceptively so. And I, th- we, know, we learned that Matt doesn't know how much memory his computer has uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> anymore. Yes. What else would our listeners need to know out of this? This is this is what um, they come for. This kind of <laughs> this deep well, insight. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're building a tool that you want other people to use, please, please, please give me a single binary for it because I'll I'll love you if you do. Um, yeah, that's and, a good one. Uh, you know, Docker sucks. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard heard Docker it here first, everybody. Suck. Docker, I use Docker every day. Docker I know. Yeah, it's it definitely has its place. We've we've said that before. Yeah. It's like you know. Mm-hmm. I right. think the Bjarne Strustrup has a quote about programming languages, which I think adequately also applies to a lot of things, including tools like mm-hmm. Docker. And that is, there are two types of programming language in the world, ones that people complain about and ones that people don't use. Yeah. And I think that's true. The only reason we complain about Docker so much is actually it's pretty yeah. useful. Yeah. True facts. All right, my friend. I think we should yeah. call it there. Um, somehow, we there we've talked for half an hour on, on absolutely nothing. <laughs> right. right. Uh, maybe to ourselves, because maybe we lost our poor listener along the way. <laughs> Probably so. Statistically likely. It is. Yeah. It's true, yeah. All right, my friend. Well, until next time. Until next time. You've been listening to Two's Compliments programming podcast by Ben Rainey and Matt Godbold. Find the show transcript and notes at www.twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Mastodon. We are at twoscompliment at pachyderm.io. Our theme music is by Inverse Phase. Find out more at inversephase.com.